I coach flag football for a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds. And something I tell them all the time, the game isn't over till it's over. You got to keep driving towards the end zone. And when it's time to turn the game around, you need all the right parts to play together. So next time you need a part for your car, don't call it quits. Just head to eBay Motors. eBay Motors has over 122 million parts, 5 million wheels, and 7 million tires. So the road to victory is always in your favor. And you can keep driving well into overtime with parts that fit your vehicle. Get the right parts at the right prices. eBayMotors.com. Let's ride. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We were young citizen soldiers, terribly naive and gullible about what we would be confronted with in the air war over Europe and the profound effect it would have on every fiber of our being for the rest of our lives. We were all afraid, but it was beyond our power to quit. We volunteered for the service and, once trained and overseas, felt we had no choice but to fulfill the mission assigned. My hope is that this book honors the men with whom I served by telling the truth about what it took to climb into the cold blue and fight for our lives over and over again. So writes the 100-year-old World War II veteran John Lucky Luckadoo in the new book he co-authored with Kevin Maurer, Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History. Kevin is my guest today and will share Lucky's story, and with it, the story of World War II's famous B-17 bomber. During the war, airmen in the 100th Bomb Group can finish their combat service and return home after flying 25 missions. Yet with a one in 10 chance of becoming a casualty, few were able to reach this milestone. Lucky was one of the, well, lucky few who did, and Kevin traces how he got there. From trying to join the Royal Canadian Air Force as a teenager, to learning to fly the B-17 on the job, to his harrowing daylight bombing missions over Germany, to the life he made for himself after the war. Along the way, Kevin describes the brutal conditions inside a B-17 and the bomber's role in winning the war. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash b17. All right, Kevin Maurer, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you got a new book out. It is called Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History. And this is a story about a World War II bomber pilot named John Lucky Luckadoo. Where did you learn about John Luckadoo and his story, and how did you come to come to meet him? It's funny. I, I got the idea when I read a Q&A that he did for the Military Times. Uh, and when I was finished with it, I went looking on Amazon for his book. And when I didn't find it, I tracked him down and called him up and asked him if he'd be interested if I wrote a book about him because I just found the Q&A to be fascinating and I knew there was a, a really good story there. And so it was just that rare chance, you know, you get a guy like John Luckadoo with that name. I mean, if I invented that name, <laughs> you know, he, nobody would believe me. So Lucky Luckadoo, bomber pilot who survives 25 missions. I, I just thought it was a really great book. Plus, he was, he's alive and he was, and he was willing to, to sit down and do interviews with me. So... You know, it was that rare, rare gem, that rare gold that you find when you're, when you're digging around looking for book, book ideas. Yeah, and these are becoming uh, fewer and far between because these World War II veterans, they're dying. They're not, they're not around that much longer. And they're not. And also, I'm running into a little bit where, you know, some of the guys, you know, maybe their memory isn't as, as, as sharp as it used to be. And so, to get a guy like John Luckadoo, who uh, still drives, a hundred-year-old guy still driving, you know, still living on his own in a retirement community, but living by himself. I mean, it's, it's, it was an amazing find. And, and we really started the book right when COVID hit. So I think it be, for both of us, it became 
sort of a lifeline, uh, something that we could go back to every day, uh, knowing that we would be working on this together. All right, so we're going to get into John's story. But this story is not just a story about John. This book, it's about the story of the B-17 and its rise to prominence in World War II. For those who aren't familiar, like what was the bomber's origin and how did it differ from other military planes before it? I mean, to me, the, the B-17 sort of comes out of this idea. And, and for those of you who've read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Bomber Mafia, you'll, you'll know a lot of this. But it comes from this idea where, you know, the, this, these fledgling air forces were trying to figure out where they fit into the bigger picture of war. And, and one of their arguments was that precision bombing, if done correctly, could, you know, cripple an enemy. And, and the B-17 was an offshoot of that in creating a precision heavy bomber that could deliver a payload with the idea that you could you could bomb your enemy into submission and bomb them into surrendering and try to save lives that you know because they were coming out of World War One where they saw the carnage and I think this gave them you know this this was the new idea of like we could save lives if we could we could do it with less less men and we don't have to get into trench warfare and it started developing before the U.S. got into World War II I guess it was like in the late 30s they started pumping these things out. Correct. Right. About the mid thirties. And what's funny is when you think about the B-17, it's, it's looked at as this sort of signature bomber of World War II. But when you get to the end of World War II, it's, it's obsolete. You got the B-29 by the end and the B-29 is the one that drops the, the two atomic bombs. It's also, you know, larger payload can fly farther and it's pressurized. You know, the B-17 wasn't pressurized. So these guys were flying in the elements, you know, at 25, 30,000 feet. Yeah, let's talk about like what was give us an idea of what it was like in a bomber because I don't think people really have an idea about this because you know when you watch war movies about World War II, it's usually about infantry on the ground. I think the only movie I remember about a bomber is like you know the Memphis Bell, but give us an idea like what was it like? How strenuous was it to be up there? It's it's kind of crazy, and I, and I I sort of learned this when I was doing the research because I sort of had the same idea. You know, we all see Memphis Bell; those guys are chatting away. You know, they're they're sipping soup. They're they're wearing their you know their crushed kind of you know uniform hats. In reality, you know, this was forty below zero. If your open skin touched anything, it was sticking to the metal. You know, there were uh, gunners who had their you know fingers amputated or lost fingers because you know they got stuck to the metal. You can't breathe because you know you need oxygen. I mean, to me, it's the most dangerous battlefield in the in the war because, unlike anywhere else, you know the battlefield will kill you faster than the Germans will because uh, you can't breathe, you can't fly, and it's too cold to survive. So these guys are bundled up in leather jackets, ballistic helmets. Their faces are covered by oxygen masks, and uh, and it's just a brutal slog for hours in negative uh, forty degree temperatures. So the cold. Uh, takes a toll on it. And Lucky, I think, does a really nice job at, at describing just how much the cold took it out of them and sapped them of their energy and, and how it impacted these crews as they fought their way, you know, to the target and then fought their way back. Yeah, there's a couple of like they would get, pilots would get frostbite. I think Lucky actually had a bit of frostbite, right? He did. One incident, it cracked the plexiglass on the nose of the, of the aircraft. And it, it, for some reason, the crack set a jet stream right to his feet and his feet froze to the pedals. Okay, give us an idea. How many were on a crew on a typical B-17? So it's interesting. It's 10 guys. So you have 10 guys. Four of them are officers. The two pilots are officers, the bombardier and the navigator. The radio operator and all the gunners are all enlisted. So it's it, so it's a crew of 10. The aircraft carries between 11 and 13 machine guns, depending on the variation. It can carry about 9,000, 8 to 9,000 pounds of bombs. It's a massive aircraft. I don't know if, if you haven't seen one. You know, it's got a 103-foot wingspan. It's 74 inches long, and that back tail is like a giant shark fin. 
So it's an impressive aircraft. There's a great quote, and I don't remember if you recall it. There's a great quote from one of the Luftwaffe guys talking about turning in on a whole formation of bombers, where he says, you know, when you're fighting against the Russians or you're fighting against Spitfires or the British, it can be kind of fun when they're shooting you down. He said, but he says, when you turn in on a on a squadron of B-17s, all your sins flash in front of your eyes. Well, yeah, give us an idea. So that was an important part of the bomber. Like these things, they flew in a formation in a, in a squadron. Like how many were in a typical formation? So on the big missions, you know, you're talking about two, 300 bombers, you wow. know, flying. So, it, it, you know, the, the actual formation goes for, for miles and the contrails, you know, create like this perfect path. So if you're standing on the ground in Germany, when one of these, these air armadas flies over you, I mean, it's, it's going to take, you know, several minutes to, to a half hour for them to fly completely over you. And there's, you're looking at 200, 300 aircraft in tight formations, you know, that are, it, it, what did they, the Germans called it a herd or a porcupine because of just how big they were, but also how they were all the planes were bristling with guns. So you, you have overlapping fields of fire. So to try to fly through, you know, miles of, of B-17s, all, all who can shoot at you from every direction is, is, uh, is pretty daunting. And that was the other important part that I learned about the B-17s. It was important that they flew in this formation. For one, you know, they allowed them to you know, deliver their bombs and just kind of like a carpet right, of bombs. But also it was just for their safety. It was kind of like a, phal- like a, a Greek phalanx. Like it protected them as well. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. I, I actually wish I you had said that when I was writing this thing because I would have been perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, they they survive because of mutual defense, which is why the German tactics were really around trying to break up those squadrons and push them so that you there were individuals and then you could attack them individually. And, and usually the, at that point, the fighters would win almost every time. When the Americans uh, joined the war... And they brought in, introduced the B-17, and they brought in this idea of uh, precision bombing. Their approach was different from what the British were doing, and in that the Americans, they did day runs. And the British, they typically bombed at night. Why did the Americans decide to do day runs when that made them you know, more visible and vulnerable than enemy fighters? I mean, I, I think the, the simple, we were, we were naive and arrogant. And I think we wanted to prove that precision daylight bombing was possible, particularly because we were leaning on a, on a piece of equipment called the Norden Bombsite, which I think was advertised as being much more accurate than it, it really was. But I think, you know, the British, you know, the British spent their nights bombing Germany and the Germans vowed never to let Berlin be bombed during the day. And I think American hubris got in our way and, and it cost us a lot of lives. I mean, the, this was, uh, you know, it was suicidal. We, we won we win the war over Germany, not because somehow our tactics were so much better, but because we could just produce guys. We outproduce the Germans. And these guys go up there, in the, in the, especially in the time when Lucky is up there. And this, these are suicide missions. You get past 10 missions and you're, you're on borrowed time. So I think that initial, that initial hubris and that initial tactic of, of daylight precision bombing, I think, was, it was folly. I mean, a lot of guys, I think their lives would have been saved if, they, if the Americans had followed the British suit and taken the B-17s and flown the same kind of night missions. Well, give us an idea of the survival rate of men on a B-17 bomber. Well, the, I mean, the survival rate is, is crazy. It's, it, you know, when you're looking at, so the statistics are basically on a heavy bomber mission crew in Europe, you're one in 10. So at, at 25 mission, that's why the 25 mission tour of duty was there. So because statistically you get past 10 missions and you're on borrowed time. 
you're not supposed to get past 10 missions. And the war in over Europe claims 26,000 men from the 8th Air Force alone. Um, that's not total. And total fatalities by the war's end is 47,000 airmen out of 115,000, you know, died because in the 8th Air Force. And I think a lot of that leads back to daylight precision bombing in early 43 when the German Luftwaffe was a seasoned professional outfit who had been fighting for years going against Americans who none of them had any combat experience. And so those kind of those heavy losses, I think, come because of that. But as you see, as the war progresses and as the Luftwaffe continue to get, continues to get you know, worn down and you look at the Americans and they're, you know, for as, as much as the tactics are terrible for the crews, it starts to work and they're able to overwhelm the Luftwaffe and overwhelm Germany and, and, you know, basically, you know, bomb them into, into submission so that when you get into later the wars, they up that 25 mission benchmark to 30 and beyond because the Luftwaffe just doesn't have the ability to shoot them down like they did in 43. All right. Cause so being on a B-17 bomber, incredibly strenuous you're probably gonna get frostbite it's not pressurized you had to have oxygen on you couldn't breathe up there you're doing this in the daylight so you're just easy pickings and the chances are if you decided to sign up and be on a b-17 crew you're probably gonna die so let's bring lucky into this story uh, john <laughs> luckadoo the war breaks out in europe and even before america had officially joined lucky and his buddy they they try to get in the action by way of Canada. What's the story there? Why were they so gung-ho on trying to get into uh, into the war? You know, this is one of my favorite parts of the story. His relationship with his, with his buddy Sully. They, did, they decide before America even gets into World War II that they want to they go up to, to Canada and join the Royal Canadian Air Force because they, they're pretty sure war is coming. You know, I think everybody was, you know, was clued in a little bit and they were clued in on, at some point, they just felt like the Americans were going to going to get involved in this. And, and I honestly think Lucky and and, uh, and Sully just didn't. I mean, they weren't great students. Uh, they were fraternity brothers. And I think that they, they had a little bit of wanderlust and a little bit of adventure. And I think they saw an opportunity, join the Royal Canadian Air Force, get the flight training, maybe see some combat. And then when the Americans get in, they could take that transfer over to the American Air Corps and already have all their training and get right into it. So a little bit is that, you know, that old, you know, male see a chance to go do test yourself, you know, prove yourself, but also do, do a little service and stuff. So, I mean, I, that's where it starts and, and how it, how it ends, I think is, is, is also pretty, I think people relate to uh, going to have to tell your parents and ask them to do this. Well, yeah. Cause you had to get permission from your parents, right? Cause they were too young at the time. Exactly. So uh, what's interesting is Sully is an only child. You know, his mother was a widow. His father died because of injuries that he had sustained in World War One, fighting the Germans. So it's interesting that when they go to Sully's house, you know, his mother is, is willing to sign off on this uh, on this adventure. And, he, and, you know, he eventually goes while, you know, Lucky's father, who <laughs> Lucky's father thinks he's insane and tells him he's not going to sign off on it and to go back to school. And so that's where they separate. But, you know, what's crazy is that they end up, you know, circling back together. And I think... I, I didn't realize it when I started the book, but Sully becomes an interesting and important character. And I think he tells a part of the story that, you know, needs to be told, but also wouldn't have been told if I just stayed with Lucky the whole way. Yeah, that uh, how his dad's objection, this kind of brought home to this idea. I think typically when we think back to World War II, we think, oh, everyone was into it. Like all Americans like, yes, this is a, the good war. We're going to go fight it. But at the, the beginning of the war, a lot of Americans are like, why are we getting involved in this? This is not our war. We, we shouldn't, we don't have any business. That was kind of Lucky's dad. He's like, this isn't our war. You don't, you shouldn't be doing this. This is dumb. Go, go back to college. 
Exactly. And, and I think one of the things that Lucky and I talked a lot about when we were doing this book is, is how to dispel some of the myths around World War II. And I, and I think that's one of them for sure, is that there was a, a, you know, a universal, you know, universal support like we think about it now. Okay, so Lucky had to wait a bit to join up, and he joins up finally in college. And he still he was gung ho. He wanted to be a pilot. When he signed up, like what it, what plane did he initially learn to fly on? He learns basically like everybody. He learns on some trainers, and it's the Volte. And so he's in South Carolina, and he he just can't seem to get he can't seem to get it. The instructor he has is from West Point, who isn't helping him and isn't isn't a very good instructor. And he he just, he thinks he's going to wash out, and so he ends up meeting with a one of the civilian instructors who teaches him. I think in one mission, exactly all the things he needed to know, and he's able to stay in. But it's a, it's a, it's a tricky plane to fly, and and it's one of those where he started with a, in a kind of a biplane and learned the basics of flying, and this was the next step up where they had to work the radios and work the flaps and and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he was about to wash out. Like he had to like make uh, so many landings, and he wasn't he wasn't doing it. And this guy uh, was Blackman, Blackie, kind of saved the day for him. Right, which it's crazy. Black Blackie is this cool civilian pilot, right? Who's got all the hours, and uh, he seems to have that that feel, and he's able to kind of teach Lucky how to be a pilot. So Lucky, he had no plans of flying the B seventeen, but somehow he ends up with the hundredth bomb group, which flies B seventeen. So like, how did that happen? Well, no one. I think I think everybody. Think of how many people you know who wanted to become pilots. Uh, nobody really wants to be a bomber pilot, right? They all want to be fighter pilots because that's that's where the that's the sexy job. But uh, you know, Lucky ran into what I think every veteran will will, will relate to, which is you know, you, it's the needs of the Air Force, needs of the Army, and so he's sent to the Hundredth Bomb Group. And at that point, the you know, the Hundredth Bomb Group was prepared to get ready. They were getting ready to deploy over to England when they they botched their final exam. Uh, and so they they end up having to reorganize, and part of that reorganization is the hundredth bomb group pulls all their co-pilots because at that point, because of the training, the co-pilots had so many hours in the seat that they were they were as good as some of the the senior pilots and other squadrons. So they pull all the co-pilots and put Lucky's newly trained you know cohort of uh, of new pilots into the co-pilot seat. And what's crazy is. You know, Lucky never flown a B-17. He'd never flown a plane with more than two engines. And he gets to the 100th Bomb Group and he gets to his squadron and he has got zero hours in the B-17 and, and learns on the job as they do their final prep before they deploy. Well, this happened to a lot of people. Like, this wasn't just unique to Lucky. Like, a lot of these... I mean, okay, here's another thing. Like, how old was Lucky at this point? I think he was uh, 20. All right. I always... Okay, I always forget how young these guys were. You know, like, there's 20-year-olds flying... B-17 bombers or, you know, in a tank. Uh, and I, I, it just, it always blows my mind because you look at 20-year-olds today, it's like, I don't know if I would trust a 20-year-old to, to do that. But here we were, it's like, all right, you never flew a B-17, you'll learn, you'll be all right, you can, you can, you can do it. <laughs> it well, what, I think if you were 24, they called you an old man in the squadron. Wow. Yeah. All right, so 20-year-old, never flew a B-17, he had to learn on the job. But the the squad that he was initially assigned to, they weren't pretty. They weren't very receptive to him. I guess it was that that whole shakeup thing. He was just kind of thrown into this group that had already had formed a bond, and like Lucky was the kind of the third wheel, right? Yes, absolutely. And so it's interesting, you know, a lot of these guys kind of knew what they were getting into. They had no exp combat experience, but the they were a tight crew, 
And I think Lucky was looked at as a jinx. It just wasn't, you know, for lack of better words, it wasn't lucky to have him. And I think some crews embraced it and they and they got, you know, they were able to train together and they they built that cohesion again with the new pilot. But Lucky's crew didn't. Yeah, a lot of hazing going on. I mean, it wasn't like mean. I mean, it wasn't like brutal hazing, but it was just like, oh, we're going to do what are the, the, the shorten your sheets prank you do at camp. They did that to Lucky a lot. Just kind of mean to him when he when he wanted to play cards. It was just kind of a lot of ostracization going on. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Don't let your health and wellness routine be so vanilla. Say goodbye to boring and bland and say hello to exciting flavors and solutions from GNC that you'll actually be excited to take every day. Whether you're just getting started with your workout goals or you've been hitting the gym for years, GNC has the perfect solution no matter where you're at with your routine. GNC has a huge selection of supplements and awesome flavors from protein that tastes like Girl Scout cookies to Jolly Rancher flavored pre-workout. With so much to choose from, you won't need to feel like you're locked into taking the same supplements over and over again. I've been enjoying some of the supplements at GNC. The one I've been enjoying a lot is their Advanced Muscle Performance Sustained Protein Blend. It's cinnamon toast flavored, so it tastes like cinnamon toast cereal. Really good. It's got 25 grams of protein, only 3 grams of carbs. I like it a lot. It tastes really good. doesn't taste like you're drinking a protein shake. To make your routine any to make your routine anything but vanilla, head to your local GNC or visit gnc.com slash manliness. That's gnc.com slash manliness. Finding the perfect suit is impossible, but finding a suit that's perfect for you is simple thanks to Indochino. With Indochino, you can choose your favorite fabric and customize every detail to find the look that's perfect for you since every Indochino suit is made just for you. With their fall collection featuring new colors and premium fabrics, you'll be in style all season long. With Indochino, you get a premium personalized wardrobe without spending a fortune. Shop their made-for-you suits starting just at $449 and premium fitted shirts at just $89. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know about my blue Indochino suit that I had made a few years ago. It's still going strong. The process to make that suit was super easy and a lot of fun. The measuring process is easy. They got videos to show you how to do it. And then you get to customize however you want it, how you want the lapels, how you want the pockets on your jacks to look. Design your perfect suit with Indochino. To get $50 off any purchase of $399 or more, use promo code MANLINESS at Indochino.com. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Check it out today. And now back to the show. So the squad leader of Lucky's uh, squad is a guy named Glenn Dye. He was adamant, like he was just gung-ho. He knew that his crew would fly their 25 required missions and they would get the heck out of there. And what was interesting, they did. Like they, he, 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 they, he beat the odds. Like his crew clocked 25 missions, but Lucky didn't go home with them. Why is that? Because um, we talked about this because of his injury. He missed out, a, he missed out on some missions because he got frostbite on his feet. And then he also missed out because... Because of Glenn Dye, and, and Glenn Dye was a you know from a reputation a really good pilot. And when he gets to England, like you said, he's really driven to get get through the twenty five missions, and so he drives his crew pretty hard. They become very good though, and become you know they're a lead crew, which means that they led a lot of these missions. But when that happened, oftentimes the operations officer or the commanding officer of the whole squadron would fly as the command pilot in the lead in the lead ship, and so when that happened that command pilot took Lucky's seat. And so Lucky had a chance to either move to the tail gun or he could sit it out. And the one mission, and, and we cover this pretty good in the book, the one mission where he moves into the tail gun 
it just doesn't work out for him. And I think he, at that point, he sat out. So by sitting out those missions, he ends up not logging the 25 missions with the rest of the crew. So they finish with, he's got three missions left when they finish. Well, what kind of missions were they running? What was their typical mission that they did together? So they're bombing a lot of targets, a lot of industrial targets. These are strategic bombers. So they're not really there to bomb individual units or tanks. You're not calling them in if you're in trouble. They're not giving you air support. These were more, you know, you're going to fly to Bremen and you're going to bomb a factory or you're going to fly to uh, into France uh, into the on the on the peninsula there and you know, you're going to bomb a sub pin. Now the idea here is you're you're bombing vital vital targets that are part of the strategic war versus the tactical war. So, you know, the, you're, you're at 25,000 feet, you're flying over your target in the, in the, in a city and you're, you're hitting a rail yard or a, a factory. Gotcha. And then for the most part, like lucky and his squad, they were pretty lucky, you know, the stuff they, they saw some action, but it was never like incredibly fierce. They just kind of lucked out his crew, his initial crew goes home. So they did the 25 required missions Lucky stays back because he has to do a couple more. Uh, this is October 1943. Uh, he was super close to you know notching his 25 missions. But what's interesting is the Germans, they started getting just more aggressive and crazy in the air. And it was getting the battles that the bombers faced were just getting more and more fierce. Like what was going on? Why were the Germans deciding to get so aggressive at this point in the war? I mean, I think the the strategic bombing, despite the losses, was taking a toll. And I think the the German leadership, Hitler, understood that you know if they don't stem the tide of these of these bombing campaign, then they're they're going to be they're not going to have the ability to continue to wage war. So I think that they they bore down, knowing that you know if they didn't stop this, at some point they're going to come for Berlin. And they had they had made this such a symbolic thing where you know you're never going to bomb Berlin during the day that. that you know, I think they understood propaganda. And so they give the order that, you know, you're not allowed to, to turn back and you're to do everything possible. The Luftwaffe is, is, is to do everything possible to keep the American bombers at bay. And, and that's where we run into them in the book on October 8th, 1943, when, when Lucky is facing three more missions and he, he picks up a brand new crew uh, and he flies out to Bremen on a on a the first of a, a weeks long kind of major push by the Eighth Air Force to really really put the pressure on the Germans and uh, and it was these 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 kind of events collide into probably one of the most harrowing missions that uh, Lucky has in his career and, and one that we talked a lot about and we went over I think we must have interviewed and gone over the details of this mission I don't know five or six times to make sure we got it right yeah he almost didn't make it on that one mission. It's funny. It's the one mission when I first started talking to him that he said, look, this was the only mission that I didn't, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to make it. He said, I felt pretty confident on every other mission that we were going to get back. He said, but on this one, I was pretty sure I was either going to die or become a POW. And and so that's why the book really leans in on this one to give, get, kind of slows things down and really digs in just because it is one of the, the more harrowing missions. I mean, yeah, give us an idea. So, okay, it's up, you're up there, it's cold, you can't breathe, but also you're, just, you're facing just gunfire all the time, right? Well, it's, it's, it's not a matter of if you're going to see the Luftwaffe, it's a matter of when. So they know you're coming, and so you get, you get to your target, and then uh, you face fighters to start. And you know the idea of twelve o'clock high. We we talk a lot about this because the the way to attack the B seventeen F, which is doesn't have the turret underneath the, the nose, was to attack it straight ahead. 
And so that's why you get, you know, 12 o'clock high, these German fighters coming screaming at you at, you know, hundreds of miles an hour right at your your nose and your cockpit and they they go blasting past so you're fighting through the fighters to start and then when you start to approach your target you get to what they call the ip the initial point and at that point you're you're ordered to fly completely flat and straight all the way to the target and so that's where you start to encounter your flak and this is this was a is a big deal because flak really was the fighters are part of the defense, but the flak really was the defense. And, and the flak's job was to either drive you so that you had to climb higher so that your accuracy was off or damage the planes enough to break up those squadrons. And so what the Germans would do is they'd put huge batteries of flak on rail cars and they would roll them out to where they knew the Americans were going to fly over. And they would pick a box in the air, like an imaginary box, and they would throw as much flak into that box as they could. And the Americans would have to fly straight through it. And Curtis LeMay early in the war decides the best way to get through the flak barrage is to not try to dodge it because you just don't know where it's going to explode and dodging it breaks up the con- the squadrons and it makes bombing really inaccurate so they they he orders them and they, the order is to fly straight through it like it's turbulence and so for the pilots they had to stay in these tight formations and and these these aircraft were, were not like modern aircraft i mean you're they're wrestling these aircraft to stay in these really tight formations through this maelstrom of shrapnel and flak to get to the target and when they get to the target the bombardier ends up flying the plane so that's the other nerve-wracking thing and lucky talks a lot about is where when they get to the initial point the bombardier turns on the autopilot so that he can he can line up the target and so the pilots just sit there with their hands folded trying and and watching the, the rest of the planes to make sure they don't get too close to a plane and crash into it yeah, and this this last run, I mean, like you just the way you, like you described it, I mean, he just he look out the window, and there's just every seems like every bomber in his formation had smoke coming out of it, or they were about to collide into each other. It was just it just I can't imagine how nerve wracking it was. I mean, they they joked that the flak was so thick they could put their landing gear out and land on it, and then I mean, these aren't armored aircraft, so you know the flak is cutting through the wings, it's cutting through the fuselage. The flak that doesn't cut through is rattling off the the side, so it's like flying through a hailstorm. So okay, he he survives that. I mean, it was just intense. And like, what happened after this mission? Like, how did the the Germans change tactics, or how did the Americans change tactics? Did anything change after this battle? Well, what what had happened is the, the you know the the Americans had figured out that the Germans were attacking them head on, which is why you get the G model. And that, for those of you guys can imagine a what a B-17 looks like. The G model is the one that has the chin turret, the two, the two machine guns right out on the bottom underneath the cockpit. And that was built specifically to stop the Germans from attacking them from 12 o'clock high straight on. So that was the, one of the big, big changes is once LeMay gets them to fly straight and they get to get it. So they've got some guns pointing forward to discourage the attacks from the front the Americans really lean in. They're able to train their crews faster. They're able to produce bombers. I think there were 8,000 G models made once they got that one into production. And that got into production, I think, in 43. But when that happens, the Americans also take the bombardiers out. And, and so they started doing where the lead aircraft had a bombardier. And when that bombardier hit the button to... Uh, to drop bombs, everybody dropped their bombs. And so they their accuracy was starting to improve a little bit just by sheer volume. 
and then they were able to put a gunner in the front to help defend the front of the bombers. But those are the clear, you know, tactical changes I think the Americans made. The Germans continued to try to do the best they could, but they had they had limited resources, they had limited aircraft, and they had a hard time training pilots because, you know, it's hard to train when you when every day you've got American bombers over you during the day, and then at night you've got the the British bombers. Right. I mean, that was interesting. The 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 two different approaches. So the Germans, like the the fighter pilots on the German side, that required a lot of skill, right? And they were just getting decimated. The crew on a bomber, I mean, it required skill, but not as much. Like you, like you could learn on the job how to fly a B-17. So you could just, it was basically, you could just throw bodies up there and just pump out B-17s and just beat them with just like, it was almost like a war of attrition, just like just throw as much people and machines at the thing as possible. It's absolutely a war of attrition. And yes, it, well, Sully jokes to Lucky when he goes to visit him. Remember that he says, you know, Lucky, you're just a bus driver. And Lucky's response is, well, we need bus drivers too. So yeah, there, there is not, it's not the same as as a fighter. And it's interesting is when Jimmy Doolittle takes over the, the 8th Air Force in 44, he switches the fighter tactics. So the fighters used to escort the bombers into the target. He he scraps that. Instead, he lets the fighters go after the, the German Luftwaffe on the ground. So they would come in and ground attack these airfields uh, and catch the Germans on the ground. And that's that really starts to make it so that the Americans and the Allies control the sky completely because the Luftwaffe doesn't even get off the ground at that point. What was interesting, as you, as you read the book, you see Lucky's kind of attitude towards the war change. I think when he first signed up, he had that sort of romantic, young, idealistic view of war. I'm going to get out there, see some action. I'm going to fight for a good cause. But as the war goes on, it's basically, he kind of becomes this, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't blame him. You become like cynical. You're just like, well, I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to make it home. That's it. That's all I'm trying to do. I This is, the, I think, the part that I was most surprised and I really, really have the most respect for in that he, I mean, he says it in his afterward, he calls war folly, that nobody wins a war. And I think this kind of sentiment and, and the trauma that he took away from World War II, I just applaud him for actually being that honest and forthcoming about his feelings and, and how he overcame you know, sort of what he experienced in World War II. And I just don't think we get that a lot. World War II isn't a, isn't a war that we often think of when it's, when it's written about having that sort of in-depth, you know, handling of, of sort of what war does to, to a human being. So looking back, big picture, what, how pivotal was the 100th Bomb Group in the European theater? I mean, I think they're essential. I think, I think without that campaign and without the sacrifices made by the airmen of the Eighth Air Force to, to achieve the goals that they achieved, I, I'm not sure, you know, everything else works out as it does because you needed that constant pressure on, on Nazi Germany that the air campaign did. And then having air superiority, I mean, ask any American soldier now about the importance of air superiority or ask the Ukrainians about the importance of air superiority. And they're going to tell you, you know, if you, if you control the skies, you know, you're, you've got freedom of movement, but if every time you move you're, and you're afraid that you're going to get attacked from the air, it just makes everything else harder. So the, the ability, like it seems impossible for me for the American and allies to land on, on the Normandy beaches during D-Day and, and be able to break out if, if they were under constant harassment from the air uh, because they weren't, I think that, you know, that lends itself to the success of that mission. All right. So uh, while Lucky was flying his last missions, they upped the required missions from 25 to 30, but they grandfathered Lucky in. So all he had to do was 25. He, he did his 25 missions. Last one was kind of like a milk run. 
basically. He goes home. Like what happened a lot? One of my favorite things to, when I read these books about soldiers in World War II, it's like, I, I like to know what happened to him after the war. I think it's really interesting. What happened to Lucky after the war? So he, the, the, what I love about the milk run, going back to that real quick, is he's the operations officer at that point, And he's, he's waiting. He's got one more mission left and he's going to hand pick that mission because there's no way he's going to like Berlin or anywhere where he's got to fly a long mission. He's looking for something he can hit the coast of France with and get out of there. And he and DeSanders, who's another pilot who had 25 missions, they pick the hand pick this one. And, and that mission's kind of fun the way they, they do that. And then they're, uh, they're pretty pumped getting out of there pretty quickly but he goes home he has some opportunities they offered him a, a chance to command one of the squadrons but he, he turned that down and he turned that down and, and this is another another thing that you learn a little bit about lucky here is he turned it down because he knew if he became the commander of the squadron there's no way he could not fly again right they're going to get hard missions and he's going to have to fly again and and for folks who read the book remember when he turns down this squadron he turns it down with his probably his head thinking about that first berlin mission that that he ends up getting assigned to and the way that the commander had treated him on that mission so he passes on all that and decides he's just going to go home and he's going to train crews replacement crews headed over so he's going to be able to provide them with sort of the hard hard one lessons that he he got and so he goes back to to uh, Tennessee. There's a good scene there where where he's at church with his parents, and the the pastor asks him if he wants to stand up and tell him tell the the congregation what's going on over overseas, and he declines. And he basically sits on his war experience for a long time. He bounces around, does some schooling, and eventually resigns his commission in the in the new fledgling Air Force to go to college. He wanted to finish his college, and he he gets into uh, the University of Denver and becomes a real estate developer down in Texas. Yeah, you know, like his story, he got married. He had a girl. Mm-hmm. That was that was interesting. He had a girl going into the war. They wrote each other. Didn't work out. He kind of he did the dear John on her. It wasn't her doing the dear John on him. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but where did he meet his his wife? Where where did they meet? They met on a double date when he was down doing some some uh, training in Texas. And then he he stayed after. I think she was very popular too. So he had to kind of fight his way through the crowd. But uh, she becomes the love of his life. And uh, and I think she, you can, I think you can trace a lot of the way that because the way he adjusted to the to what he had experienced. I think speaks to her and that 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 marriage. And so he said he he comes home. He's a real estate developer. He I guess he doesn't really talk much about the war. Like when did Lucky? And this is like this is common for a lot of these World War II vets. They don't they didn't really talk about it until. There's something, always something that causes them to come out of their shell, like start telling these stories. Was there something that kind of nudged Lucky to start telling his story? He was asked by a school group to talk about his experience and his service over in World War II. And I think that was the first time. And I think he, uh, uh, forgive me, I, I want to say he was 670 or so. I mean, he was he was, he was older. Um, yeah. But he's asked to, to talk, kind of recount some of his experience. And that's sort of what broke it open for him. And he... He started talking more about his his experiences. He also was a volunteer at the Frontiers of Flight Museum in Dallas, and I think he shared some of his aviation experience there. And I think that's what led him to uh, to me. I mean, I think had he not had that experience and, and sort of had the opportunity to to talk a little bit about this, I don't know if he would have would have taken part in the book. So, I mean, what have you taken away personally from Lucky's story? You know, after spending so much time with him, and then also researching about his story? One, I, I learned a ton about 
the daily grind of of the air war. I mean, I I, I had, much like everyone, I I had sort of a romantic idea of it, and I didn't really truly understand the conditions they were fighting in. I also just took away. I think I got a friend out of it. I mean, I I really we met during COVID, and he became very much something that in a time when we were all sort of trying to grapple with what our reality was. Um, I knew I had a conversation with Lucky, and I knew what we were going to talk about, and so that that sort of friendship over the phone actually. For that, we spent a year on the phone doing this. I think it was a it was a touch point for me. So I feel like I got a a really good friend, and we we sort of have a common experience that we'll we'll always have. And so that to me, that's the the most valuable part is I, I got a chance to meet this meet Lucky, but more importantly, I got a chance to tell this story. And and this is one of those rare stories, you know, you're always looking for that you know is bigger than you and 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 has such this great soul at the core of it. So yeah, no, I'm just lucky to to have met him. I don't I don't know about you. Maybe I think this might have happened to you. Whenever I talk or interact with these World War II veterans, I always like I it, it like it somehow just like being in their presence and like rubbing shoulders with them, like it it motivates me to like be more decent. I don't know. I, I think that's like the best word I can describe. It's like not. It's like be a decent human being. I don't know if that happened. Does that did that happen to you with your interactions with Lucky? Absolutely. I mean, these guys are these guys are an amazing generation. They they have a different mindset. They come from a different place than us. And I think there is a level of decency there, and there is a level of unity. And and and, and while maybe there were some differences, you know, at, at the smallest level, overall, I mean, this was a uh, we were a nation that united over every you know over a common goal. And that there's something powerful about that. There's something makes you want to be better. It makes you want to be more decent and it makes you want to find that common ground. And so, yeah, no, I absolutely, I know exactly what you're, that feeling. Cause I, I had that same feeling. Yeah. Well, Kevin, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? I mean, obviously you can buy it anywhere you buy books. I've got a website, kevinmauer.net that I'm quickly trying to update, <laughs> but you can get information there. I'm on Twitter at scribbler six is the is the handle and obviously we're going to be out and about i'll be for folks we're in dallas with lucky he'll be at the frontiers of flight in at the end of april for an event around the book but also a chance to really sit down and talk with lucky so we'll be out and about you can find me on twitter and, and online fantastic well kevin mauer thanks for your time it's been a pleasure uh my pleasure thank you much for having me my guest today was Kevin Maurer. He is the author of the book, Damn Lucky, One Man's Courage During the Bloodiest Military Campaign in Aviation History. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, kevinmaurer.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash b17, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles rewritten over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminds you on List They Win podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu.